the country post-Iraq is not behind a policy of regime change. Regime change, those words, are toxic words politically in the United States. It is the week of March 16th, and welcome to episode 16 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Dana Stroll, former senior staffer at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we are doing a deep dive with Rich Goldberg, a senior advisor to the Foundation for Defensive Democracies and former director for countering Iranian weapons of mass destruction for the White House at the National Security Council. Prior to his work on the NSC, Rich served as chief of staff for Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner and deputy chief of staff and senior foreign policy advisor to former U.S. Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois in both the U.S. House and Senate. Now, to our listeners, we are trying something new today. This is a corona-friendly podcast recording where Rich and I are not uh, co-located, we're not even in the same city, and we're using multiple platforms to bring this podcast to you. If you have any recommendations or feedback on how we're doing or how we can make it better for the next time we do another corona-friendly podcast recording, please do not hesitate to get in touch, and I will give you all of that information at the end of the podcast. Now, on to the meaty segment of our podcast. Rich, what I'm going to do is ask you three sets of questions. The first thing I'd like you to talk about is policy in the first several years of the Trump administration toward Iran. Then we're going to talk about Iran policy after the operation to take out Qasem Soleimani, the former head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards for Hood's Force. And finally, we're going to talk about the way ahead for the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy on Iran. So for all of you that are listening today, you can actually go to the New York Times January 24th, where Rich articulated quite clearly exactly what the Trump administration's Iran policy is. So rather than have him regurgitate that, I'm going to give you the most important sentence, and then, Rich, I'm going to ask you some questions about it. So you said in that op-ed, President Trump's strategy to confront Iran is easy to understand. Impose maximum pressure to gain maximum leverage ahead of negotiations to dismantle its nuclear program and address its malign activities, all while avoiding a military entanglement or pursuing a policy of regime change. So, Rich, here's my first question for you. Why not regime change? It seems like all through the campaign, President Trump made it totally clear that he thinks the regime in Tehran has to go, that they are committed to revolutionary export of an ideology that's dangerous to both the United States, to Israel, to our allies in the Middle East. Talk to us about how the administration reached the conclusion that the policy should not be regime change. Well, I think it's ultimately the president who has decided that the country post-Iraq is not behind a policy of regime change. Regime change, those words, are toxic words politically in the United States. Uh, Whether you would like to see the regime go into the dustpan of history, uh, as Reagan would have said of the Soviet Union, uh, or you definitely want to see a negotiation or you want to see something else happen there, if, if you have any sort of your mind of a victory strategy like Reagan had, uh, or you're actually looking at undermining this regime in a way that is not a military invasion, uh, you have to find other words for regime change. Uh, because regime change means to people, 
U.S. Army is getting ready to invade. Uh, bombers are on the way. Shock and awe. We're going to take down a regime by force. And of course, that is not the president's policy. Uh, recent votes in the Congress on a bipartisan level, even for simply self-defense measures, um, show that there is certainly not support for an all-out military conflict uh, with Iran. And so when we think about the policy of maximum pressure, I do think, as you've seen with North Korea, the president does want to achieve some sort of negotiation so that he can say he got the deal that Obama couldn't, he got the end state that we need. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think he sees uh, the leaders in Iran in a much different light. Uh, he sees them as dangerous, evil people uh, who are radical uh, ideologues uh, who may not ever want to actually make a deal with the great Satan. And if, that, if that's the case, then maximum pressure still serves America's national security interests by draining the regime of the resources it needs to conduct malign activity. So it sounds like what you're saying is the administration tried to find different words because regime change evokes big military confrontation. So are you saying then, and, and this is sort of one of the main criticisms of, of a lot of uh, members of Congress on the Democratic side, that this is a policy of regime change, just not through overt military force. So there, the maximum pressure policy is sanctions to force complete capitulation, which is essentially regime change. No, I, think that that? It, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that for the president, again, he is not going to forcibly remove the regime. And if you do not have a policy of regime change, uh, there are things that the US government does when you have a policy of regime change, likely in the covert realm, but other overt things as well. Look at what we do with Venezuela. Uh, if there is a declared policy regime change, a lot of options are on the table to undermine a government. If there is not a policy regime change, you can only use the tools up until that line. And so when it comes to the Iran policy, we see the latter, where we really have more of a rollback strategy, try to force the regime back within its borders, push them out of the region. Uh, you have a victory strategy, you could call it, uh, a la Peter Schweitzer's book, uh, Ronald Reagan, the Soviet Union, of uh, trying to use political warfare, economic warfare, and military deterrence uh, to wait out and, and let this ideologically and economically bankrupt regime sort of collapse on its own if it doesn't want to change its behavior. But I don't believe the president in his heart wants a regime change policy in the way that we think of it today. Thanks for that. So here's my next question for you. When you served on the National Security Council, you were a practitioner of foreign policy, not just somebody from the think tank world who analyzes, critiques, reinforces foreign policy. So how does the administration make it clear both domestically in the United States and to partners and adversaries abroad that the policy is not regime change? So beyond the words, how is the Trump administration signaling that the policy is not regime change? Well, I think the president has said it in no uncertain terms, and when he says that he's willing to talk uh, to Iranian leaders, when he's willing to get on the phone with Iranian leaders, when he's willing to talk to them, you know, if you are a true regime changer, right, then it is anathema to have negotiations with the regime. Uh, there are people out there who think that the idea of signaling a willingness to talk already undermines the people, the dissident community, the protesters. Uh, somehow empowers, legitimizes the Islamic Republic. 
we're going to sit down at a table and legitimize them as some sort of legitimate government, uh, then you have sort of undermined the thesis of regime change, of saying that they're illegitimate. That That is a feeling that a lot of people in Washington have if you're on the sort of total commitment to regime change mentality. Now, I think there is nuance to it, and there is a lot of gray space area, and where you get somebody like a Secretary Pompeo, who obviously is enormous Iran hawk, but also very practical and pragmatic, and sees where the president's at, uh, and uh, has helped guide the administration uh, into a foreign policy that says we can be like Reagan and call them illegitimate, uh, you know, take them into multilateral bodies, indict them on their human rights records, stand with protesters, even get funding to protesters, do whatever we can to undermine the regime, hope they fall on their own from within, hope something better rises up that we don't have to get ourselves into a military entanglement over. But at the same time, if they come to the table on our terms, under our maximum pressure campaign, they agree to dismantle their nuclear program, uh, then that is valuable to our national security in a state where there is no other option at present uh, for an obvious alternative to the regime. One of the bodies of thought about Iran's sponsorship of terrorism is that it's very easy for the regime to do this on the ch on the cheap, that it's actually not that expensive to fund terrorism in Syria, in Iraq, etc. And that means that sanctions on their own is not going to be compelling enough to get the Iranians to give up all of the linkages they developed across the region to support terror. Can you talk to us about how the maximum pressure policy connects to countering or stopping all of Iran's malign activities. Yeah, I think it's a great point uh, because you can't rely solely on economic pressure. I think it's obviously the primary tool that the president uses, not just in Iran, but in other places as well, where there are hotspots and he wants to leverage American power and avoid the use of force. So the economic lever is obviously the primary dominant tool here. But to have a successful maximum pressure campaign, you have to have other uh, successful tools as well employed. Political warfare is a very important tool that I don't believe we are utilizing uh, nearly enough. Uh, when Nikki Haley was at the United Nations as ambassador, uh, she was holding at some points uh, every couple of weeks a uh, Security Council meeting to decry uh, Iran fomenting conflict in Yemen. Remember the, uh, the shows of the Iranian-sponsored rockets uh, that had been recovered. Uh, and this is a very important tool, not just in the UN, but in other international fora. Uh, we have Ambassador Jackie Wolcott in Vienna, who does an amazing job to try to beat the Iranians uh, politically on what they're hiding on their nuclear program. But ever since we got away from uh, the ambassador to the UN being a cabinet post and sort of being back underneath Secretary Pompeo at state, uh, I think we have not been using our political warfare card. Another big piece uh, in the toolbox that we need is military deterrence. Uh, that is something that somebody would argue, some people would argue, was lacking. Uh, up until the Soleimani uh, killing, uh, and uh, perhaps even led to that. Now, I think there's reasons why, uh, and we can talk about that, why there was a lack of deterrence uh, for a few months uh, as Iranian attacks were escalating. Uh, but you're right, it is cheap for them. You have to raise the cost for them where they are. The Israelis do a good job of that in Syria. Uh, there are reports of uh, so some of the operations we've seen in Syria expanding now into Iraq. Uh, from unknown sources, where we can guess who they might be. Uh, and so if you can raise the cost uh, for the IRGC, uh, for the regime of operating outside their borders, alongside uh, the maximum pressure campaign, alongside diplomatic isolation, 
uh, in international fora, I do think you have a great recipe for a maximum pressure campaign that has to force the mullahs to think, is this worth it? Uh, and can we hold on much longer? Thanks for that. So you are getting ahead of me. We're going to move to part two of this podcast. We're going to talk about policy leading up to and then after the Soleimani operation in Iraq. So you alluded to this and just to unpack it a little bit for our listeners. Last year, Iran tested U.S. commitment to the maximum pressure strategy several times by attempting to make U.S. policy painful for its partners. At least that's how I see it and would argue what their actions were. So over the course of the second half of the year, last year, 2019, a U.S. drone was downed over the Persian Gulf, tankers were mined in the Straits of Hormuz, and there was the spectacular cruise missile attack on Saudi Aramco facilities. In each of these cases, the United States did not respond militarily. So Rich, the question I have for you is what lessons do you think the regime in Tehran took away from the United States decision to not use military force? And what are the lessons or interpretations or perceptions that our partners and allies took away from those series of events last year? Yeah, so on the first part, I think the regime probably uh, took two things away from their actions and the lack in their perception of, of counteractions from the United States. Number one, they probably started believing that it was possible the president was what some people might call a, a Twitter tiger, uh, sort of a paper tiger, uh, that uh, he says a lot in, in bold letters, uh, big letters on Twitter, but doesn't follow through with kinetic action response to attacks. Uh, we saw the uh, withdrawal uh, announced uh, from Syria precipitously that contributed to that probably as well in their minds. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they probably were getting frustrated that even these attacks uh, were not working for the strategy that they were trying to operationalize. Uh, and that is some sort of counter maximum pressure campaign that sort of uses these uh, little pricks of terror attacks here and there at a level that is very disruptive to international commerce, disruptive uh, that gets into the media cycle, gets attention of political leaders in the United States and Europe to create some sort of political pressure on the president to back down on the maximum pressure campaign. And that's certainly what they had hoped would happen, especially with the brazen attack on the Saudi oil, taking out 5% of the world's oil supply at that moment. And all of their, what they had hoped for from these actions didn't come to fruition. They did not spike the price of gasoline. They did not uh, precipitate uh, President Trump uh, pulling back on sanctions or granting sanctions relief or saying yes to uh, the French President Macron's plan for sanctions relief and negotiations. And I think that grew in frustration and said, okay, well, if he's still not responding to this escalation, let's escalate further and see what happens. And so while I think the president was justified in not responding, in order to preserve his political space to keep and maintain and grow the maximum pressure campaign, the side effect of that is the increasing uh, confidence to escalate on the Iranian side. And that uh, eventually uh, led to the death of an American contractor uh, and the storming of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And I think at that point, uh, they had crossed the president's red line when he said, if you kill an American, we will respond. And ultimately, that miscalculation led to uh, the end of life for one Qasem Soleimani. Oh, you're getting ahead of me every single time, Rich. So let me ask you one other question before we talk about the Soleimani operation. 
there was a lot of focus on what the Iranians interpreted from the lack of U.S. response to their provocations last year. There was a lot of discussion, especially in Washington, about deterrence, how do we restore deterrence, et cetera. But the governments and the peoples that were directly impacted were our Gulf partners. So what, how do you think they interpreted the lack of U.S. military response? Well, I think it's it's complicated for them. Obviously, in some ways, uh, they're among the top cheerleaders uh, for the president's policy of maximum pressure. Obviously, very supportive of the decision to leave the Iran nuclear deal and reimpose maximum pressure. Uh, we're very much uh, part of the coordinated strategy to end the oil waivers on Iran, uh, to provide backfill on oil supply uh, for any customers of Iranian oil, to try to maintain stability in the oil market. Uh, and, and just a close uh, ally uh, strategically in the region. Uh, and so when it comes to an attack on their soil uh, in part of an escalation uh, to test their will and the will of the United States, uh, I think it is a wake up call to, to make sure they understand that this is not a situation where we're gonna call every play and Iran will never respond. Uh, and so you have to do uh, as much as you can uh, with your partners to ensure that they know that, that we are willing to increase um, our defensive posture. Uh, the president obviously moved in additional forces uh, and missile defense assets uh, to try to reassure Gulf partners. Uh, but what they also need to understand uh, is the education of the American uh, body politic right now, which is that if the president uh, decides at one moment that he is going to respond militarily on Iranian soil, and he's going to carry out a strike in response to whether it was a tanker in the Gulf or whether it was the cruise missile strike on Aramco or uh, the rocket attacks in Iraq and go after sites or a site uh, inside of Iran, he is likely politically only going to get one opportunity to do it. And we saw that obviously in the uproar uh, in the Congress over the Soleimani killing. Uh, there will be a political pendulum swing that forces him to de-escalate. And de-escalation means sanctions relief. And so to preserve the maximum pressure campaign, he has to exercise extreme patience throughout this process while continuing the maximum pressure campaign. And that can make a lot of allies nervous. Uh, and so it just takes a lot of diplomacy and a lot of reassurance and laying down clear red lines where if you know people are killed, if they go too far, they need to know there is a bottom line. He showed them that uh, with the Soleimani strike uh, obviously, we've had some recent reports of additional escalations and more Americans killed. So I think we're going to have to have further discussions on whether we've achieved deterrence and what more it would take to make sure we have achieved that deterrence without uh, entangling ourselves in a full-blown military conflict. So you have alluded a couple times to congressional action. So to explain to our listeners, what Rich is talking about is a war powers resolution that passed the Senate after the uh, Soleimani strike and very recently passed the House of Representatives. President Trump said he was gonna veto it and I think everyone expects him to veto it. There's also an assumption that Congress will not muster the two thirds majority it requires to override that veto, which means in the end, this war powers resolution seeking to limit the president's ability to declare war or use the military instrument against Iran to be limited is not going to become law. And this four powers resolution did provide flexibility to the executive 
in the event of self-defense. However, what's remarkable about it is even though there's quite a partisan divide about Iran policy, in order for this resolution to pass the Senate and the House, it meant that a sizable number of Republicans had to go over to the Democratic side in both the Senate and the House to pass this. So Rich, as a former Senate staffer and also a former executive branch staffer, my question for you is how do you interpret this resolution at this period of time? How much is it about legislative executive tensions, constitutional prerogatives, et cetera, and how much of it is actually a disagreement about Iran policy? I think in general, it has to do with the American people and, and a lot of our elected officials uh, still uh, reeling from what happened to the U.S. Uh, Iraq war and the political fallout from that conflict. And so military conflict, the talk of war, uh, is politically unpopular. We know that. Now, at the same time, though, if you break down specific actions and specific uh, military, limited military strikes in response to those specific threats, uh, we do see overwhelming support for following on American control for responses. So whether it is a terrorist who is rising up to kill you, and whether or not you should be allowed to kill them first, uh, whether it is a nuclear weapons program and a breakout to a nuclear bomb potentially. Uh, these are things where I think we would all agree on that the executive does need to have the authority to use force uh, to protect the interests of the United States. This, of course, then becomes a political football, though, in an election year and beyond, knowing that just characterizing this as a war footing, characterizing it as a path to war, could be politically damaging could appeal as well to some Republicans on the libertarian side uh, who feel similarly on foreign policy and bring them over and split some of President Trump's base. And so that's what they're trying to do with this resolution. Uh, but in the end, if you're the Iranians, you have to look at this and see that we still have a fractured American political system here and that the response to escalation, the response to terrorist attacks, the response to threats, is a very active, lively debate and even uh, bipartisan vote to restrict the use of force in many cases. And while the resolution is nuanced, there isn't nuance in the headlines about it and the reporting on it, and the Iranians see that they can perhaps still have success by continuing to escalate. And we've now seen them continue to do some escalation with another couple of Americans killed. So personally, I, I truly would, would you know, hope that uh, people on both sides of the aisle but say, you know what, this is the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's a very dangerous terrorist-sponsoring regime. Uh, they've killed Americans. This is the first time they've done it before. Uh, and if the president has uh, active threats uh, that, that the intelligence community reports and wants to take out one of their terrorist leaders, uh, he should have the authority to do that. Um, whether or not he should have the authority to go to war is a, is a very good debate. It is, it is a constitutional debate. And it's not wrong to say in, in many cases that he shouldn't have total carbon authority. Uh, but to do that debate, to have that debate right in the wake of a terrorist plot and what could have been an Iranian retaliation, further Iranian escalations in the future, which we are now seeing, I think is very dangerous uh, to American foreign policy, where we really need to get unified and have those conversations once things have the escalation. Great, thank you. So we're gonna to move to the third set of questions and then wrap this up for our listeners. We're gonna talk about the way ahead now. So Rich, 
talk to us about where you see the Iran and the resilience of the regime today. Not only is the economy in a total downward spiral, given the devastating effects of maximum pressure, there's been widespread domestic protests uh, late last year, leading to early this year. Now there is the coronavirus, um, which by all accounts is massive and also devastating. Um, with several regime officials recently deceased because of um, being infected by the virus. So do you think the regime is feeling stable right now and resilient? And if not, why not come to the negotiating table now and see what kind of relief they can get? I think it's hard to know exactly the financial state of the regime at any given moment. I think we have a good sense of it, but how much they actually have left in the tank uh, is unknowable given the opaqueness of the system and money that they may have stored away in different business empires of the Supreme Leader and different farms and farmyards. Uh, but I would say this, if, if in a football analogy, looking at the full field of the Iranian economy, and their strength and momentum was somewhere on our side of the 50-yard line, uh, we have pushed them back inside their own red zone. They are somewhere between their own 20-yard line and their own goal line. And the question is, how far uh, are they from the goal line, which will be the point at which they would have to come to the table to negotiate or risk full collapse? Now, I would say that before coronavirus and before the recent plunge uh, in the price of oil due to the uh, Saudi-Russian uh, oil production spat, I would have said that we probably were not going to get to the goal line before election day this year, which explains the Iranians sort of continuing to hunker down and feel very confident in their ability to get through November, see if the president gets reelected, and then make a choice. With coronavirus, as you mentioned, being so widespread and taking a further toll on their economy, uh, we saw, I think, the February numbers was a 30% uh, further drop in exports. Uh, after all, the other exports that have already dropped under maximum pressure, you imagine that number is continuing to go down through March. Uh, we have also seen, obviously, they have some illicit cargoes that still go out to China and elsewhere of their oil. That is now worth a lot less uh, because of the price of oil taking a plunge. Uh, so. Whatever their contingency plan was between now and November is likely shifting under them. At the same time, they have lost their senior terror strategist, Soleimani, uh, who was probably holding a lot of plans together uh, for them and was uh, a source of you know, their oracle of, to rely on from the Supreme Leader of what we should do next from a strategy perspective. So it is a perfect storm that they're facing right now. And uh, I worry uh, that we would uh, give any sanctions relief and let them out of this box uh, right now or between now and November, that would be disastrous. Um, we do need to help the people of Iran uh, rescue them from their incredibly incompetent uh, government and ensure that not only for their own sake, but for the world's sake, they don't continue to spread a coronavirus. But we need to do that in a very careful, well-thought-out way that we get direct uh, assistance, targeted assistance, technical help to the Iranian people, but do not provide wholesale sanctions relief uh, when the regime is is probably very close to a tipping point. Rich, I'd like to ask you about planning or thinking about what a negotiation looks like if it gets to that point. So during the last round of negotiations, there was the P5 plus one construct, the UK, France, Germany, Russia, China, the United States, and Iran at the table. 
Uh, we know that Israel and the Gulf states were disturbed by that construct. Um, so can you talk to us about what you see as the sequencing and framework of, of what a new negotiation looks like and also what you see as the role of Congress going forward? Yeah, those are two great questions. Uh, on the first one, I think if we look at North Korea being the guidepost and how the president has reacted so far on the Iran front, overtures from the French, uh, from the Japanese, from others, uh, to be part of some sort of facilitation of diplomacy, uh, he seems very set on a bilateral negotiation uh, where Europe may play some sort of role uh, constructively in bringing parties together. But the idea of a P5 plus one, I think, is an anathema to the president. And so if there is a negotiation, whether before November or if the president is reelected and they come to the table after, I think it will be very specifically on terms where it is bilateral uh, in some fashion. Uh, the Iranians will likely want to include other actors, uh, whether it's Russia, uh, China, uh, Europeans, et cetera. I think the president will be very resistant to that. So it's interesting to see, to see just the negotiations over negotiating, uh, how that even comes uh, to fruition. Uh, but beyond that, I do think Congress plays a very big role. Uh, actually, before the JCPOA, there was bipartisan legislation that was put forward uh, by our old bosses, uh, Senator Menendez and Senator Kirk, uh, in which they actually laid out parameters of what the minimum standards of a quote-unquote good deal should look like to win sanctions relief. Now, another way to go was obviously what the administration currently has said would be its approach, which is to submit any agreement uh, to the Senate uh, as a uh, treaty to be ratified. Uh, and we recall uh, Senator Cotton sent a very famous and controversial letter at the time to the Supreme Leader before the JCPOA saying this is a political agreement. You're making it with one party. And if there is a change in leadership, if you have not submitted this as a treaty to the U.S. Senate for ratification, uh, you know, anything goes later on, and that's, that's certainly what happened. So I think there's a lesson uh, to be learned both on the Iranian side uh, and on the U.S. side to demand that a treaty get uh, submitted so that there is bipartisan uh, buy-in. And I think that forcing that threshold of a vote also forces your negotiators to negotiate harder to get a better deal that can actually win that sort of bipartisan high vote threshold of ratification. Uh, what is in that deal? Obviously, we have the 12 points from Mike Pompeo laid out uh, as the basis. There are some people in Washington who believe that's just a starting point to talk. There are some people in Washington who believe that's just the minimum of our demands, and they will grow from there. Uh, two very different directions of negotiating possibilities. My view, the number one uh, prime directive of a negotiation, besides not providing any sanctions relief until the end, which I with a major flaw of the JCPOA, is that any final agreement has to force Iran to dismantle its nuclear and missile infrastructure. Now, a lot of people say that it will never happen, that's impossible. I would simply respond that a, that a bad deal is not worth it, that a good deal it, or no deal are really the two possibilities here. And a good deal means that Iran is not left with the infrastructure in place to threaten us again at a time of its choosing. A lot of people blame the president, the maximum pressure campaign. What we see right now is the expansion of Iran's nuclear program. I say this is the direct result of a deal that leaves Iran with the ability to do this at any time. 
if we had held up our pressure and waited for a deal that forced them to take away all their centerpieces, dismantle their capability of enrichment, they couldn't just respond when they didn't like our policies by enriching once again. And so if that is not possible, if they will not agree to that, we are better off with no deal. Thank you so much for sharing uh, this podcast with us, sharing your insights and views. I could go on with about 100 more questions, but alas, we are out of time. So, dear listeners, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Fault Lines. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Tune in next week for another provocative conversation and a continued exploration of national security's fault lines. So long.